I did a lot of thinking about, because it said sermon, and I preach sermons in church, and, and actually what I have prepared has a lot about location and building and some of the stuff that I talked about yesterday. And it's a, it's a real question, well, there, there's so many layers to this, because we are, and, and we are doing, we are here at a German festival. And talking, we had yesterday afternoon, had a little conversation around the table with a group of Germans, and I was learning about, well, these towns have festivals. And, and I don't know really what a German festival is. And I have, I have inklings of it. I have ideas about it. But it's quite clear that if you are a German you know what a festival is in a way that I don't know what a festival is. There's a context there. And sermon, for me, happens in, there's an entire context there. There's a liturgy. And, you know, Protestant, especially Christian Reformed liturgies, are very sparse. There's not a lot of overt structure, but there's a liturgy and a context. And I know a number of you are, moving into the Orthodox space, or have lived in the Catholic space. So there's, there's a lot that goes on in, in this. And when I first started doing the rough drafts for Sunday on my channel, I wanted to include a little bit more Christian content in my channel, but I also wanted to distinguish it from what happens on Sunday. Now, you can always, you can always watch the live stream from Living Stones on Sunday, but very, very few people do. And there are reasons for that. And they have everything to do with context and content and all of those things. So a big question in my mind is exactly the question of what this gathering is. And to a degree, um, Matthias and Cassidy and all of you, I mean, especially the Germans who are here, this is a, I mean, right away, this is a festival. Hmm. That's interesting. What is a festival? What is a sermon? What is a church? When I started the meetups at Living Stones, that in some ways is part of the lineage of estuary, any other meeting that I do at church, I open with prayer. And we close with prayer. And in the Christian Reformed Church, almost every meeting, you open with prayer and you close with prayer. It's, it's, it's what you always do at your liturgy. And I remember with the meetups, I did not open with prayer and I did not close with prayer. And that was very awkward for me because that was my pattern. And in many ways, I didn't know what to do in those meetings and we had to sort of make them up. And so actually, when we were at the lunch yesterday and I was asked to open with prayer, I, I, part of me, that, that's the most natural thing for me to do in the course of a meal, obviously, but I paused and I thought, and I asked the question, should we? Because, you know, I, I'm around enough people that for some just to, I was a, I was a, I drove a truck when I was, um, when I was young delivering lumber and I'd have to go sometimes with another guy because we had to deliver windows. And I remember one day we were eating at a lunch, we we're stopping at a McDonald's or something and just had lunch on this long run. And I had my food and I was eating with this guy. And before I, I ate, I just, bowed my head and closed my eyes to pray before the meal, just silently, quietly by myself. And the other guy from New Jersey said, what you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and 
And I opened my eyes. I said, I'm praying. Oh, don't do that again. And, and on one hand, there's a, and I, I think we're in many of these kinds of moments in the culture where we don't know what to do. Because on one hand, to be a Christian and to be an evangelical Christian, I know that means something very different in terms of European history than in American history right now. To be a Christian means to, um, well, to, to opi, um to be pronouncing, to be evangelizing, to be good newsing. Well, 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 what? Well, it's if you read Paul, um, and if you read the Book of Acts carefully, what the Apostle Paul did was good news, the message of the resurrection, in the broader Roman Empire, and his message. I think you can boil down into three different points that Jesus is risen from the dead, Jesus is Israel's Messiah, and Jesus is Lord of creation. Those three points. Jesus is risen, Jesus is Israel's Messiah, and Jesus is Lord. And, and so I, I thought a lot about, well, what are we going to do this morning? And, and we don't have a liturgy. And especially for the Orthodox and the Catholics, we don't necessarily have a sacred space. There's no cross up here. And I think especially this year, at this time and this place, as I said yesterday, this is one of these first things. And so whether you've known it or not, this group has already established liturgy for the German Bridges of Meaning Festival. And so... If, as I, I, I hope and think that they will next year, they do something again under that name or at least a mutated name, some of you will come back and you will say, last year we did this. Oh, it's already liturgy. So then the funny thing about liturgy is if you do it a second time, it's really liturgy, but if you change it, now you have a reformation in the liturgy. That's right. Now you, have, now you have a conflict. Well, you know, it rained last year. It's not the same if it doesn't rain. <laughs> Remember how we were in those tents and it was cold and we huddled and we sang at the fire and... The rooster. The rooster. The rooster. If there's no rooster, it's not a Bridges of Meaning festival. Jordan Peterson is going to be talking about Exodus, and so I thought I would deal with Exodus this morning. Exodus is sort of like you have the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they wind up in Egypt because Joseph saves the world. If you read the language of the book of Genesis... It's, it's quite remarkable because the whole world comes to Egypt to eat the bread that Joseph had warehoused because he knew the famine was coming. And through Joseph, the whole world was saved. 
and that's very much connected to um, Genesis 9 through 11, where the whole world was flooded and everyone was drowned except for... This is, this is actually going to be more of a Sunday school class. Anybody know who wasn't drowned? Noah and his family. And so you have this story in Genesis of God saving the whole world from a famine through Joseph, not the firstborn. And, and in fact, in many ways, the Bible is so nuanced. This, it's a story about Joseph, but it's really a story about Judah. And Judah, in a sense, has to go through his own narrative arc. And anybody know who really saves Judah? Any guesses? This is a little, this is, Tamar. yes. Tamar, or Tamar, Tamar, saves, don't know the language. You should have watched me, you should watch me butcher the Dutch. Um, she saves Joseph. She saves Joseph by playing the prostitute. Stories and stories and stories. But then you get into, so then of course, well, Joseph is number two in Egypt. And, you know, bring the family back. And the whole family goes to Egypt. And they're all saved. And then at the beginning of the book of Exodus, you have this, this tension. Because on one hand, there's a new pharaoh. And they've all been enslaved. And they've forgotten. They don't even know the name of God anymore. They don't even know who they were calling out to. They've been in Egypt so long. All they know is that they are now Egyptian slaves. And God comes to them. And, well, first we see that they've been blessed. And we know that through the midwives. And... Pharaoh sees that they are strong and Pharaoh wants to do genocide, cultural genocide against them by, by drowning all the baby boys in the Nile. But of course, Moses in the basket and the midwives and all of this. And God says, I'm going to save my people. I'm going to bring them out of Egypt. But as the black preachers in America say, oh, you, but you've got to get Egypt. First, you're going to bring Israel out of Egypt, but you've got to get Egypt out of Israel. And that's going to be this purge of the desert. And in fact, an entire generation is going to die. But we're not there yet. And so, with his mighty hand, with the plagues, demonstrating his power, through Moses, who complains he cannot speak, and Aaron, who is, in a sense, the, the front man, but Moses has the power. God, with a mighty hand, brings Israel out of Egypt. And there's some murmuring over water and all of this going on. And then he brings them to Sinai. And he says, put a, put, a, put, a, put a fence around Sinai and I will speak to them. And he speaks directly to them out of Sinai. And the people say, oh, I love hearing God speak to me. Is that what they said on Sinai? Anybody know? They said to Moses, shut him up. You talk to us. He's too, he's too frightening. 
So Moses is going to talk. So then, so, so then they receive the ten words, and then they receive the law, and then, and this is the fun part again, because everybody who wants to read the Bible says, I'm going to start in Genesis. Oh, what amazing stories. Um, uh, Adam and Eve and the flood and, and I, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and what amazing stories. And then Exodus, oh, Exodus. It's so cool. The pharaohs and the plagues and then this and a little bit of murmuring with the waters, but then all the way to Sinai and God speaks to them and you have the Ten Commandments and that's where everyone stops reading. Because then you start getting into all of these little laws and everybody stops reading. But then you know, all the laws that don't seem to deal with anything that, that we have to deal with and laws and laws... And if they'd only read a little bit further, Sabbath laws, annual festivals, festivals of the harvest, festivals of ingathering three times a year, the angel, God's angel is going to prepare the way for the people. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And of course, all the American preachers say, and the Mosquito Bites. Worship the Lord your God and his blessings will be on your food and water. I will take away your sickness from among you and none of you will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. In many ways, these first books of the Bible are sort of nested. These are sort of like the Deuteronic Deuteronomic blessings and curses that you can find at the end of the Deuteronomy, but they're, they're right here in Exodus. I will establish your borders, place, from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the desert of the Euphrates River. I will give into your hands the people who live in the land and you will drive, and I, and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not, let their, do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the, told the people all the Lord's words and the laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Have you ever read the book? That's one of the most amazing statements in the Bible. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Ah, what do we learn about people there? Moses then wrote down everything that the Lord had said, just so that they would know there would be a record. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 stone pillars. Why 12? 12 tribes of Israel. Why are they pillars? We talked about that yesterday. Connect heaven and earth. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it into bowls and the other half splashed against the altar. Then they took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. 
And they responded again. We will do everything the Lord had said. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the Lord of Israel. You can't see God. You're not supposed to see God. Then they saw the Lord of Israel. Under his feet was something like pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israel. They saw God, and they ate, and they drank. Wow. There's more there than I could possibly articulate, and in a sense, trying to articulate it impoverishes the simplicity of those words. And then what happens? Everything the Lord says we will do. Uh, they won't. They won't do it. But we're still in the middle. Then Moses went up on the mountain. The cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain for... Anybody guess how long he stayed? 40 days and 40 nights. We talked a little bit this morning about the cadence of American preaching and black preaching. Well, you can find these cadences in the text itself. And again, too many people don't read quite this far because they get stuck in all the little laws between Exodus 20 and Exodus 24. And they miss Exodus 24, which is in so many ways the climax and crescendo of this whole story. But then, anybody know what happens in Exodus 25? This is where people really stop reading. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose hearts prompt them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat's hair, ramskins dyed in red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastplate. They are to, they are to make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then from there, we hear about the tabernacle. And of course, they will have the tabernacle. And a holy God will live in the midst of an unholy people. And the tabernacle in many ways will be a nuclear containment unit. Because... 
for all of Israelites, all of Israel's words that we will do what he says, they certainly won't. And sometimes they will not do it in a very dramatic way. And the Bible will talk about God breaking out of the tabernacle. In fact, even when the tabernacle gets inaugurated, they have the altar there in front of the tabernacle. And it's all set to go. And two of Aaron's sons are all nervous because there's no fire. And so they go into the camp and they get some fire from the camp. And they're going to, they're going to light the altar itself. And fire comes out of the tabernacle and kills sons of Aaron and lights the fire. Well, well, what is the fire in the altar? Anybody know? What was up on the mountain? What does God look like on top of Mount Sinai? A consuming fire. What is the fire in the altar? A consuming fire. All of this is right there. God is going to live in the midst of his people. But Israel won't do what he says. And by the time we get into the book of Samuel, you almost get the sense that the tabernacle is sort of a tattered, corrupted thing. Eli can't see. His sons are corrupt. And so another promised child will come, Samuel will be raised in the tatters of the tabernacle. And of course, Samuel will once again revive and restore and rescue. But the sons of Samuel will also be corrupt. Samuel will bring in Saul, but Saul will be corrupt. And so then Samuel will bring in a man after God's own heart. And that man will finally deliver the people from the Philistines. But the son of that man will build the replacement to that tattered tabernacle and the temple will be built. But then there'll be hundreds of years of struggle. Do we, do we sacrifice at the altar in our backyard? Or do we sacrifice only at the altar in Jerusalem and there'll be all those struggles? And then, of course, the temple itself will be corrupted. And when Ezekiel before the temple is destroyed, is taken into the land of Babylon, and shock, God shows up in Babylon. Ezekiel will have visions of this corrupted temple, and the armies of Babylon will come, and they will destroy that corrupted temple. And then they'll have no temple. And what will the people of God do? Then they will take this book, this book of the covenant, all of the things we, that God says we will do. They will take this book of the covenant and they will meet in little places with little groups of people and they will read the book of the covenant and they will remember, we promised to do everything and we didn't. And here we are. There were covenant blessings and covenant curses and we've seen some of both. And here we are. And of course, the temple will be rebuilt. But those who remember the old temple, instead of shouting with laughter when they see the temple rebuilt, they will weep because they'll remember the glory of the old temple and the new temple, not so much. And that new temple will endure. But Israel will be under Persia. 
and Israel will be under the Greeks, and they'll revolt against the Greeks, but the new administration will also be corrupt, and with all the political gainsmanship when the Romans are the next group in town, well, they'll cut a deal with the Romans, and well, yeah, then the Romans will be in charge. And Herod, who was a consummate politician, we talk about politicians in America or Israel or Germany, Herod the Great, he was a politician. He was able to switch sides. I back Julius Caesar, I'm his good friend. I back Mark Anthony, I'm his good friend. Like Cleopatra. Herod the Great, he'll survive. What will he do to the temple? He'll embellish it. He'll improve it. Why? He wants to be a Messiah. So the temple will be there. They won't be sacrificing in other places, only sacrifice in the temple. But that practice that they started when the temple was destroyed, all of these groups of people all over the place of being around the book, Rehearsing the book, reading the book, reminding each other of the book, praying the prayers of the book, that will continue. And of course, Jesus comes into this world and announces this temple will be destroyed. And, you know, in all fairness, um, I don't know if you needed divine revelation to know that the temple would be destroyed given the direction of Jewish politics at that moment. And Jesus announces, tear down this temple and three days later, I will rebuild it. Paul, before the temple is destroyed, goes to places like Ephesus and Corinth and Antioch, and eventually Rome, and will announce Jesus is risen from the dead. The temple was rebuilt. Jesus is Israel's Messiah. He's a savior of Israel. Joseph was a savior of the world. David was a savior of his people. Samuel was a savior of his people. David was a savior of his people. Jesus is in the line of David and Jesus is Lord of all the world. And of course, everybody understood, well, Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord. The temple is still standing. There will be an uprising. The temple will be taken down. The Jews will continue to meet together around the book. And the Christians sort of do that same thing too. And eventually, of course, the Christians will start to build buildings once they can. All of these themes that we wrestle with are here. Oh, hold off on that yet. What are we doing in this place? We have Christians who are, well, I'm a Dutch Reformed Christian, and I have better sense of that now having been to the Netherlands. We have people who are moving into orthodoxy, we have Roman Catholics. How can we have a poll here and not have a Roman Catholic? And we have atheists. We're not quite sure what those are because no God? Well, well, 
unclear about God? Okay. And had a wonderful conversation yesterday at lunch about, well, where's our Macedonian? The people in Macedonia, they, they celebrate fasts. They celebrate festivals. They celebrate holy days. But they're atheists? Not quite sure what that means. They practice. Then we have people in Israel who are reconstituting the promised land, as it were, but do they believe? Are they, what does it mean to be a son of Israel? That's a difficult thing. And then we have all of these Christians that in many ways took the practices of the synagogue and added Jesus, and then added the stories and the books about Jesus, just on the tail end of the writings of the Jews and the writings of Israel. And, and, and now here we are in a very estuary-ish space on this Sunday morning. And it's a sermon. Well, it is sort of a sermon. I mean, I've had lots of Bible in it. I've been telling the story of the Bible, but we're not quite sure what we're doing. Our, our friend in the back with his Orthodox cross... No, no one from an Orthodox church would confuse this, I assume, with an Orthodox worship service. No one from a Christian Reformed church would confuse this from a Christian Reformed church service. And, you know, I've got the CRC liturgy by heart, and I could have run, it, run you through it. And, I mean, it, was so, it struck me yesterday when Byrne talked about singing, because... On one hand, we knew that you sang around the campfire, and, and, and already I felt the cultural tensions because in America, singing around a campfire is sort of a, something about the frontier and the West. And um, my friend here asked about music this morning, and, and, and then the word guitar came in, and I thought, wow, now we're in an American evangelical space because all you need for an American is to have church. You just need a guitar. But what are we doing here? I think about Hebrews 11. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews takes these ancient stories and it talks about the fact that Abraham was looking for a home. And he never found it. And Joseph, in saving the world brought his family, in a sense, out of their home and into slavery for the sake of the world. Joseph turns Israel into slaves for the sake of the whole world. And of course, Jesus will pick up that theme. The greatest among you must be, now part of the problem in English is that in American English, if you say the slave of all, people think about American slavery, antebellum, all of that. But those of you who know some Greek will say, the greatest among you must be the slave of all. And so when I think about what's happening this morning in this thing that isn't a church in this gathering, which isn't a worship service. We're not going to have, we're not going to celebrate the Eucharist. And, and we're even sketchy about 
something as, as, as simple as bowing our heads and praying together, I can sense that in many ways, not unlike Israel coming out of Egypt, we are looking for a home. And we don't quite know what to do. God can get Israel out of Egypt, but getting Egypt out of Israel is a whole different thing. But we're looking for a home. And when I think about what people are looking for on YouTube, they're looking for a home. They're looking for shalom. They're looking for well-being. They're looking for security. They're looking for all the same things that Israel was looking for. And when God said, here are the rules, and Israel said, we'll do it, well, we're pretty much the same. Because human beings are flaky, half-hearted, can't follow through, rebellious. But we're looking for a home. And that, to me, brings up another book and another passage and another chapter Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. In, in, as all of you know, because American media is pervasive, we have this tradition, probably comes from Europe, where on the day of the wedding, the spouse isn't supposed to, the, the groom isn't supposed to see the bride. And I think it's a lovely tradition because, because I do remember the moment in my own wedding where I saw my bride. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. Ah, it's the tabernacle. It's the temple. It's the church in the middle of the town. It's the tower. It's the spire. It's the community. It's everything. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. Notice how Moses wrote down all of the writing down. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to them, it is done. It is finished. To Tetelestai. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. 
To those who are victorious, those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, it's always tempting to cut it off at verse 7, but you shouldn't. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, and those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates to the east, three to the north, three to the south, and three to the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And it goes on. We are looking for home. Now, if you watch any of my rough drafts, and I know from the analytics that a lot more people watch my commentaries on Jordan Peterson than watch my rough drafts for Sunday, you'll know that via the Heidelberg Catechism, I always end my sermons with a movement of three points, misery, deliverance, gratitude. What is the misery? We're not home yet. We don't know how to act. We're half-hearted. This is what we should do. We will do it. No, we won't. Misery. We're not home yet. We don't even quite know what home looks like, and we can't agree on what it would be. Deliverance. The Christian message is this. God knows how we are. He knows that when he comes down, oh, I'm, I'm curious about God. Why can't we see God? Here I am. Does that fix everything? I don't know what to do. Here's what you should do. Does that fix everything? We will do it. No, you can't. No, we can't. Misery, deliverance, someone comes. To both do it for us and to give us his spirit so that we can participate in its doing. And again, we're a small group of people, very randomly gathered. I mean, five years ago, just look around you. How many of you knew anyone in this group five years ago? Does uh, except if you're married. Well, even you two. Um, does, does anyone here know anyone in this group more than five years? Who do you know? Your cousin. <laughs> Blood. 
Yet here we are. In a sense, we're sort of like the rabble that comes out of Egypt. And we don't know what to do. We can't even agree what to do. Can't even, even agree what church to go to or, or, or what religion to embrace. But, but we are here and we are gathered and this isn't a church and I'm still not exactly sure this is a sermon, but here we are. And I make it a sermon because, well, I'm a Christian minister. What do Christian ministers have to say? That in fact, God is demanding but he's also loving and he calls you to himself and he has made that way open and possible not through your works although you have works to do but through his own mercy and grace as seen and made through his own son this is the Christian message Misery, deliverance, what's the third one? Attitude. Gratitude. What does that mean? All he says we will do. No, you won't. But maybe you should try. <laughs> maybe you should try. And don't try out of fear, although there's plenty that is reasonably to be afraid of. Try out of gratitude. Try out of confidence, not in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of his son. One of my favorite parables of Jesus comes after the most famous parable of the prodigal son. And every time I talk about this parable in this way, somebody will say, that's not what that parable means. I like Kenneth Bailey's interpretation of it. There was a man who was a steward, and he was corrupt. And his master caught him in his corruption and said, I'm going to fire you in a little while. What kind of master fires a corrupt accountant in a little while? Because you know exactly what the accountant will do. So the corrupt accountant went to all of the people who owed the master money and said, how much do you owe him? I owe him half a million dollars. We'll make that 250,000. Boom. How much do you owe him? A hundred thousand. Let's make it 50. Boom. And the master hears about it. And we would imagine the master would say, oh, corrupt accountant, throw him over to be tortured until every last penny is paid. But instead, the master says, oh, 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 I've got the best corrupt accountant in the world. What's wrong with you? Why don't you turn the man over to the torturers until every last cent is paid? Because this corrupt man knows he's corrupt. And he does not bank on his own ability to, we will do this but he counts on my mercy and my righteousness, not his own. It's my favorite parable of Jesus because if I have to make the cut of getting into the home I long for based on my ability to accomplish 
what is demanded of me, I know I will never get there. But if I count on the strength and mercy and perseverance of one who is all faithful, who will never tire, who will in fact achieve the glory that he desires and achieve the ends that he wants and bring it to a conclusion, that one I will count on. And once I see his glory, once I see his grace, once I see his mercy, now suddenly, perhaps the corrupt accountant will say, I'd like to work for a man like that. And I'd like to be his good and faithful servant. Amen. Now you can keep your eyes open. I'm going to bow my heads and I'm going to, I'm going to bow my head and say a few words and, um, you can follow along if you like. Lord, you are a good God and you don't treat us as our sins deserve. As far as the East is from the West, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. Lord, we're in the midst of a world that is mixed up and broken. And just as Jesus looked upon the hillside and said, My people are like sheep without a shepherd. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lord, help us to look to you for our rest. Help us to look to you for the strength to obey your law and to live in conformity to your will. Help us to look for your strength to know how to live in this world where things are all mixed up, where politics and economics and environmental um, Environmental justice is all just so mixed up that we don't know what to do and we don't know where it goes and we don't know how to live. And Lord, I thank you for this gathering. I thank you for each of these people that have decided to give us this time and attention. And I pray, Lord, that you bless them. I pray, Lord, that you speak to their hearts. I pray, Lord, that you give them the desires of their heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would lead us each towards the home that we have never known and always desired. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.